There are some mirrors that I go to in certain places. I don't know what it is about the lighting, but there's certain mirrors in certain places where I look better. And I prefer those mirrors. And then there's other mirrors that have, I don't know what it is, some sort of maybe brighter specialized light. And I go, ooh, ow. And then there's just some natural things happening to me as the years go by. Some of you can relate to this. Like I'll look in the mirror one day and then the next day there'll be something new on my face. And I'll be like, how could in a matter of hours something new be there? Some of you will realize this when you get a little older. It just seems to happen. But anyway, <laughs> you guys might remember the, in the uh, Snow White movie, the Wicked Witch would look into the mirror and she would say, Who's the fairest of all? Oh, you are, my queen. But then Snow White came along, and the mirror couldn't lie. And God's word is a mirror. God's word does not lie. God's word is truth. And when we look into God's word, and I'm sure you've probably noticed this, it causes us to look deeper than we've ever looked before. The mirror of God's word is not about a cursory glance, in fact, I would say the mirror of God's word looks into your very soul. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. Everything is naked and open before the one to whom we must give an account. That's Hebrews 4. 12 and 13. God's word is powerful. When I first became a Christian and walked into a Christian church, I noticed that, you know, God every week had some sort of special message for me. Maybe you can relate to this. Every week I would say, does that preacher have a copy of my diary? And then I realized, wait a minute, I don't have a diary. I don't keep a diary. What is going on? Are people from this church following me around town? But the truth is that God's word is like a searchlight, and it goes deep. Some of you may remember the song that Michael Jackson sang, I'm looking at the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make the change. Now that's a good song. And then he goes, woo, woo, na, 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 woo. But we won't go there. Anyway. <laughs> but nobody could do that like Michael Jackson, right? Anyway. Hee, <laughs> hee. In James, the mirror is God's word. And many times I think in life, you know, maybe like this song, I don't think Michael Jackson wrote the song, but he sang the song, we want to change our ways, right? We, we might see something in our lives that we want, to, we want to tweak or we want to fix. And God's word is certainly good at pointing that out, right? Every week we come into the church and we go, oh, great, he's preaching on the book of James. We all know what's coming, right? It's going to be each week some hard-hitting stuff. And we have a desire to change, and I've said in the last few weeks, the only way we're really going to change is to allow God to make that change. To be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, to let God, as he shows us things in our life, 
make that change as, as he holds up the mirror. There's a story from the last century that tells how a missionary out in the bush had hung a small mirror on a tree in order to shave. The local witch doctor ha happened by, curiously looked into the strange glass, and seeing her hideously painted features, she jumped back. Immediately, she began to bargain with the missionary to purchase the mirror from him. The man objected, but to no effect, and finally realizing that the witch doctor would not be put off, he let her have the mirror, whereupon she threw it to the ground, breaking it in pieces and shouting, There! That won't make any more ugly faces at me! <laughs> what she didn't realize is that what she was looking at was herself. And sometimes when we walk into a church like this and we hear the word of God, that's where we need to really focus. We need to see that God's mirror is almost like a two-way mirror. It shows us for who we really are, and it goes deep. It's a searchlight, but it also shows us something else. If you're a Christian this morning, as you look in the mirror and you look a little deeper, you realize that you are cloaked, that you are covered. Indeed, you are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. In fact, when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you in your weakness and sin. He sees you through the finished work of Jesus. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. That's what God does for us. But James doesn't want us to be any, under any self-delusions. And so hard-hitting, what we might call the theme verse of the book of James, he says to us, but prove yourselves, or be, the ESV says, verse 22, doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If you have an NIV version, it says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now in church, I think we're, we all are familiar with the idea of amen. When you say amen to a preacher's words or to a Bible verse, you're saying, I agree, that's right, yes. So we have to be careful with our amens because when we say amen to something, we're saying, I believe that, that's true, I agree with that, and maybe we should change the amen to I'm going to do it. Because that's what James would say. You can be an amener, but are you a doer? You can amen truth all day long, but when you go out into those streets, the real question is going to be, do you have an intention of doing beyond the amening? There are a lot of ameners in churches all over the country and the world this morning. But the real rub, the real, the real issue is whether or not when you go out those doors and you say amen to something, if you actually apply what you hear. Because if we don't apply the word, according to James, we are self-deceived. It's probably one of the worst kinds of deceptions. To think you are something and actually not be that at all. And so James says, look, don't be deceived. Last week, we, we how many of you remember the, can you all say it? The QSS, be quick to hear or listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. All right, you guys got it. How many of you were challenged with that uh, reality almost immediately after you left church? On Wednesday night, I walked by a brother who doesn't come here on Sundays, and he walked by me, and he went, and I went, amen, brother, yeah. All right, but here's the deal. How did you do with that this week? Were you challenged in a conversation within a couple hours of that message? Were you quicker to listen? 
You know, that's the true test. Were you slower to speak? Were you slower to become angry? Did you, did I, apply God's word? Or did I just say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, amen, amen. Right? Almost sound like a sprinkler up here, don't I? Anyway. So a doer carries the characterization of the whole personality. It's all of a person's inner being. The Bible says to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's everything that you are. The Greek word for hearers here, and I'm quoting from another, was used of those who sat passively in an audience or listened to a singer or a speaker. Today it could be used, the word a hearer, of those who audit a college class in which they are required to attend and presumably, presumably listen, but for which they are not required to do outside study, write papers, take tests. In other words, they are not held accountable for what they hear. Tragically, says this author, most churches have many auditors, members who willingly expose themselves to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God but have no desire for that knowledge to alter their day-to-day lives. They take advantage of the privilege of hearing God's word, but have no desire of obeying God's word. They simply audit the class. They come in, they leave, and there's no visible change. And James says, I'm just telling you what James says, if you do that, you're deceived. You, You have not really experienced the power of God. Now, I will say this, Every one of us is in a process of change. And change, for most of us, comes little by little. I'm not talking about walking out of here and every time you hit the mark with quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about perfection. But I am talking about an intention to let God's word actually change you. And as I look around this room, I know that this room is filled with a bunch of people with that heart, with that desire to change. And so James says, look, you're either a doer or you're deluded. You're either an amener or you're someone who actually wants to go out and do the word. Jesus said, what do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. He answered and said, I will, sir. Amen. I'll go, dad. But he did not go. He came to the second son and said the same thing. And he answered and said, I will not. Yet afterward, he regretted it and he went. Jesus says, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the latter. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe in him. Douglas Moo says, Jesus' preaching is filled with overwhelming, amazing wonder of God's sovereign grace, reaching down to sinful man in the gospel. But equally prominent in Jesus' summons is Jesus' summons to radical obedience. In obedience that is the necessary human response to God's grace. The gospel contains both the saving power of God and a summons to obedience, close quote. Chuck Swindoll wrote a book some years ago, and I'm going to just summarize what he said. He said, could you imagine if, let's say you work for a company, 
and your boss says, hey, I'm going to go set up a branch of our company in Europe, and I'm going to be gone for six months, and I'm going to travel overseas, and I'm leaving you in charge. So imagine he, he puts you in charge of everything, and he goes off to Europe, and he sends you a letter every week with instructions of what to do and how to run the company and how to take care of things. And you receive each of those letters, and then when he, he comes back, let's say six months later, he comes back and he finds the office is in a shambles. You haven't done anything that he said to do in those letters. He walks in and the receptionist is doing her nails and playing a video game and nobody's doing any work. And he walks in and he says to you, as you sit there eating a donut and doing nothing, watching a soap opera, what are you doing? Didn't you get my letters? To which you respond, oh yeah, we got your letters, every one of them, once a week. In fact, we have small groups studying them in each place of the office right now. We've broken down the language, we've parsed you know, the, the, the meaning, and, and we've studied them, and, and we're looking deeply into those every week. We've studied them. In fact, some people have even put your letters to their memory. They, they could quote your letter. And the boss says, but you didn't do what I put in those letters. You studied them, you memorized them, but the company is a disaster. That's what James is saying. A lot of Christians are famous for hearing preaching, getting into Bible study, all necessary because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17, we all know that. That's a necessary component. Necessary but not complete. Because if we hear the word and we don't act upon it, in another simile that Jesus gives, James gives us a mirror. Jesus gives us a person who hears God's word and does not act upon it is like a person who built his house on sand. If you've ever gone to the beach, tried to set up one of those uh, makeshift volleyball nets, you've got to have the right stuff because sand can't hold it. So you've got to have a holder or you've got to pack the sand and wet it. There's certain ways that you've got to deal with sand. And if you build your house on sand, if you hear the word and you don't act upon it, Jesus says there's going to be a storm, the wind's going to blow, it's going to beat against your house, and your house is going to fall because it wasn't built on the right stuff. I'll show you another man. This is the one who hears God's word and acts upon it. He's like a man who built his house on a rock. And when the storm comes and the winds blow and beat against that house, same storm, that house stands. There are many scholars that believe that Jesus' words there are eschatological. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? They have the idea of the end of things when the storm of God's judgment will come over your life. Those who built on sand will be swept away in the judgment. Those who built on rock will make their stand. Why? Because there's only one foundation that you can build on, and that is Jesus Christ. You can't build on any other foundation. Now, the reverse is also true, that there are some people that believe in doing good deeds without being born again. They're going to be okay. And the Bible doesn't teach that either. The Bible says you must be born again, and then the good works need to flow out of a saving relationship with Jesus. And so a hearer and not a doer looks like this, verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word, 23, and not a doer, he is like a man. See the word like? That's what... Uh, we would call a simile. We're given a simile here, or you can call it, um, uh, as Jesus used many parables, it's that kind of idea. 
It's, it's a way to grab the, the meaning here. He is like a man, the one who hears but doesn't do, who looks at his natural face, literally the face of his genesis, the, his natural face in a mirror. He's like a man who looks at the mirror, but once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So the Word of God is almost like a mirror ministry. If you look up at the image, you can kind of see a, a person who took a glance and then he's walked away. How many of you like Brian Regan, the comedian? Brian Regan is so funny. And he said, hey, he said, have you ever had a friend who had one of those hairs growing just right out like the middle of their forehead? And, or maybe they're a coworker, and it's that hair that you just want to pluck for them. But everybody's embarrassed to tell them about the hair. So people are going around the office and saying stuff like this. Did he notice it yet? Nope, still there. Next day, did he pluck it yet? Nope, still growing out. How does he not see it? I don't know. He must look in the mirror, and maybe it's just this straight kind of thing where somehow it eludes his notice, right? And, and <laughs> that's kind of the person here. It's like they look in the mirror, and one writer I was reading this, re this week, Ralph Martin, said it's the, the idea of it is it's remedial. It's like if you look in the mirror and something's out of whack, you usually want to take care of it, right? Isn't that what a mirror is about? Like you get ready in the morning, and I know the ladies put on their makeup and guys maybe shave or whatever, and the mirror has some remedial purposes. It's to make you look presentable before you exit stage left. Amen? So why do we look in the mirror? We may pluck a couple things. You know, the ladies are, the guys are, la -da -da, la -da -da, right? And, and what are we doing there? We're trying to fix ourselves up for the day. Well, imagine that uh, you had something not looking so good on your face. And instead of taking care of it, you just go out. Well, then you haven't let the mirror do its job. Part of what James is saying is that if the Word of God points out something, then take some remedial action. Don't have a whatever attitude, right? I don't know if that's passe now. Are teenagers still saying that? Whatever. And you got to say it like that. Whatever. Right? We don't want to have a whatever attitude to the Word. Right? And when the word of God goes out, we want to say, okay, I'm going to adjust my life. I have had many times over the years where I heard something from the word and I thought, I'm not doing that. Or that's not how I saw that. And then I have a question. Does this book stand in judgment of me? Or do I stand in judgment of this book? And there are a lot of people who will say something like, well, I don't like that part. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I don't like that part of the mirror. I'll look over here, right? And, and we're famous for telling people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear so that they could make the change. In fact, if we're going to be a good friend to somebody, if a good friend had that hair sticking out, wouldn't you want to say something like, hey, dude, <laughs> you want me to pluck that for you? I'd be happy to, shapoink, you know, if... Or if they have something on their face that isn't so attractive. It can be hard to say something. But you say something because you want to save them the embarrassment. God says to the people of Israel, My people have forgotten me. 
They burn incense to worthless gods. They have stumbled from their ways from the ancient past to walk in bypaths, not on a highway, to make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. In Ezekiel 22:12, God says, you've forgotten me. You look at the mirror of my word, but then you walk away and do what everybody else does, says God. But here's the second simile or contrast to the first person, but one who, verse 25, looks intently at the perfect law. And both people mentioned here, it's not just a cursory look. They, they are spending some time looking. One who looks intently at the perfect law. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Psalm 19, verse 7. God's word is perfect, but here the perfect law is called what? What? The law of what? Liberty. So many people think, well, if I align my life to God's word in every aspect, then I'm just going to, it's just going to be some sort of bummer. And I'm not, have you ever heard this before? If I get really serious with Jesus, I won't be free to do what I want to do. Maybe not. But you'll be free to do what you were meant to do. You'll be free from sin and death. How's that? Jesus said, the word, if you, just, if you uh, stay and abide in the word, the word, it will set you free. The truth will set you free. And the word of God is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. If you want to be who God has called you to be, if you want to truly be free, then look intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty. And abide by it. The NIV says, continue to do this. This man, not becoming a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. So he looks at God's word. But unlike the first man, he actually does it. He becomes an effectual doer. This man, what's your Bible say? End of verse 25, shall be what? Shall be blessed in what he does. Do you want to be blessed? I think everybody walking around would say, oh, of course I do. Here is the biblical formula to blessing. What is it? Very simple. Look at God's word. Listen to it. And do it. That's the key to the blessed life. How blessed is the man, Psalm 1, who who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, right? He... He spends time, he meditates on God's word day and night, and he, she will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that bears fruit in its season, and whatever that person does, they prosper. You want to be that? You want to prosper? Then the key is right here in the book of James. You just hear God's word, and you apply it. This man, this second man, is a different kind of listener, and he is, she is, a blessed person because they're actually carrying out what their Lord said to do. Now, some specifics in the last couple of verses. Okay, how do you apply? Like, what does God really want from me? Does he just want me to study my Bible? Does he want me to show up to church on Sundays and Wednesdays? What does God really want from me? This is not an exhaustive a list of doing, but here are three major things that God wants you to do. Not exhaustive, but for James, these are keys. And here's what he says. 
If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. What if a man or a woman says they're religious? Have you run into somebody who says, I'm spiritual. I'm a religious person. I believe. And you begin to ask some questions. Maybe you get to know this person at work or they're in your family and you don't see any visible proof or fruit that the belief is actually meaning anything in their lives. They're not applying God's standards, for example, in their morality. They're not applying God's standards in their mouth. They're not applying God's standards at work. And you have to ask some questions like, well, you say you're religious, but does it affect your daily behavior? So this is a person who thinks they're religious. And then James says, this is pure and undefiled religion. This is the untainted form in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows and their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. What is religion? One definition is that it is a set of beliefs that answers the ultimate questions. Like, what is ultimate reality? What is the nature of the world? What is the nature of humanity? What's humanity's main problem? What happens after you die? Such a definition means that a religion does not necessarily include belief in God. I'm quoting somebody else. A set of rituals or a class of clergy or priests. Secularism and Marxism are examples of what could be called religions in that they answer ultimate questions, but they do not teach the existence of a supernatural realm, nor say anything about God. Man has a religious urge, but he must end up serving the right God. And there is such a thing as false religion. There's such a thing as people who say they're religious, but they don't truly know God. Mark Twain said, Having spent time with religious people or good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to hang out with tax gatherers and sinners. <laughs> Jesus' harshest words were for religious hypocrites. Think about it. Think about his life. Think about his ministry. Think about the times that he got angry. Think about the times when he really ruffled the feathers and even shocked the disciples. It was in the face of religious hypocrisy. It was not in the face of someone who sincerely said, I'm broken and I need you. If you say, I'm broken and I need you, he's going to have his arms open wide. But if you sit there like this with a smug look, acting like you've arrived and everybody else is wrong and you're right, well, that's where oftentimes false religion comes in. There are zealous people, but zeal does not equal relationship. And so you can say you're spiritual, you can say you're religious. People said to Jesus, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom God sent. I think that's John 6, 29. So three things in James uh, application. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, verse 26, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is what? It's worthless. Okay, illustration number one, example number one, application number one. Yeah, I'm religious, but then when the person goes out, their mouth is destructive. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your mouth will give away your heart. Simply put. Now, all of us could say, okay, I'm a work in progress. 
I'm not the person I used to be, but I'm not the person I want to be yet. Amen. We're all a work in progress. Every now and then, Christians even, oh, I know it's hard. Oh, what happened? Right? Sometimes. But look, if the overall theme of your life is you walk out of here and your mouth is out of control. Think about a bridle. What does a bridle do? It controls what? A horse. So you put uh, the bridle, the bitten bridle on a horse to control like a 1,500-pound animal that could do a lot of damage if it got away and it was kind of freaking out, but you've got it under control. And James says, look, if your spiritual life is really connected to the power source, then your tongue, your mouth will be under control. won't be perfect, but it will have the bit and bridle. And if you don't bridle your tongue, says James, your religion is worthless. Wow. J. Vernon McGee says, Christianity is not a religion, it's a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. You either have him or you don't have him. Or as J. Vernon used to put it, you're either a saint or you're an ain't. <laughs> right? You could be involved in external religious rituals all day long. Liturgies, routines, ceremonies. You can say prayers. But if your mouth is completely destroying others around you consistently, James says, you better look in the mirror. You better see if the reflection that you're seeing has actually been met by the power and the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. I noticed after I became a Christian that my language began to change. And it, I wasn't even really trying, but I would talk to one of my f- friends on the phone who wasn't saved, and they pretty much talked like this. We're all surfers, and it was like, hey, dude, dude, and then we bleep, 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 and dude, bleep, 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 dude, 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 bleep, bleep. And after a while, the bleeps began to bother me. And sometimes the bleeps included the name of the God that I serve and the one who saved me and died for me on the cross. And I don't appreciate when his name is used that way. And so it began to hurt my heart when I would hear language like that. Not that I was trying to walk around like some prude who's correcting everybody's language. That, that wasn't my heart. But I just noticed that my language began to change. And now it's just... What's natural for me is not to speak that way. And that I would just credit to the glory of God. And I'm sure many of you can relate to this. My mouth isn't what it used to be because my heart has changed. And I think we can all resonate with that. And James is saying, look, this is one of the key measures of how that mirror has actually impacted you. Is your mouth different? Do you speak different? Is it bridled? James will give us more on the tongue in chapter 3, but he'll use this kind of language. And this is a good way, if you're taking notes, is your tongue tamed or is it filled with poison? To use the bridal analogy, do you need to say to your tongue, whoa, whoa, and rein it in a little bit? Look, we all could probably say, yeah, that's true. And that is when you know things are changing. Once while John Wesley was preaching, he noticed a lady in the audience who was known for her critical attitude 
All through the service, she sat and stared at his new tie. When the meeting ended, she came up to him and said very sharply, Mr. Wesley, the strings on your bow tie are much too long. It is an offense to me. He asked if one of the ladies present had a pair of scissors in their purse. When the scissors were handed to him, he gave them to his critic and asked her to trim the streamers to the length of her liking. After she clipped off near the collar, he said, Are you sure that they're all right now? Yes, she said, that's much better. Then let me have those shears a moment, said Wesley. I'm sure you wouldn't mind if I also gave you a bit of constructive criticism. I must tell you, madam, that your tongue is an offense to me. It is much too long. Why don't you stick it out, and I'll cut a little bit back to my liking. You know, that mirror goes both ways, doesn't it? And sometimes when we're looking at others and we want to be super critical about what they don't do right, and look, this is, this is rampant in the church today. I'm not talking about substantive issues. I'm talking about the church all over the world, the church in America. We tend to major on the minors, and we get divided over stupid things, and we lose our effectiveness. And James probably heard that Christians in the congregation were doing this to one another and maybe doing it even against God, as we saw earlier in chapter 1, blaming God or blaming one another, maybe even blaming James. Job said, For how long will you crush me with your words, Job 19.2? The key word here is control, not perfection, but control. Is your mouth or tongue under control? If it is, you're making progress. If it's not, James says, look in the mirror again because what you're doing might be sadly worthless. Let him who means to love life and see good days, 1 Peter 3.10, if this is what you want, if you want to love life and see good days, 1 Peter 3.10, refrain your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. How many of us would love to have taken back some words that we've spoken over the last 10 years? How many of us can reflect on some major milestone moment where we just absolutely fell on our face. And we only wish we would have just had the bridle on. We only wish, I wish I wouldn't have said that, in the moment it seemed like the right thing to do or what I wanted to do, but now I'm regretting it. And so this is where James has already told us, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. One author said, a true test of a man's religion is not his ability to speak, as we are so apt to think, but rather his ability to bridle his tongue. That's number one. Number two application. This is pure, uh, this denotes clean, undefiled, free from contamination. Final verse for this morning is 27. Religion in the sight of our God and Father. All I really care about is what God cares about. What does he see as pure worship? What does God the Father see as pure and undefiled? It's to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Application number two. The wider application is to help people in their distress. Greek word for distress is phlipsis. It's, it's the idea of tribulation. It's the word used for the great tribulation. Second application, if you want to be a doer of the word, be a helper of other people, especially those who are in distress. I'm talking about legitimate distress. I'm talking about people who are actually poor, people who need our help, people who need to see the hands and feet of Jesus. If you want to be a true worshiper, says James, bridle your tongue and get busy into action. 
How about more action than words? How about we actually go start helping people? And the word visit, by the way, doesn't mean just stop by for a visit. It means to meet a need. It means to hover over. It's the word from which we get uh, episkopos or an overseer. It's to oversee their situation in their distress. I can't do it for everybody. You can't do it for everybody. But could you do it for one person this week? Maybe you are. Have you ever just met a need in a moment, maybe help somebody with a practical need. Maybe, you know, as a church, you guys are so generous and I could tell you story after story. I'll tell you one recent one. We had a woman connected to our fellowship. Her mom passed away. They were $1,900 short to pay for the memorial service. They were cooking tacos and trying to do car washes to pay uh, uh, for the service, a local mortuary. And so they had asked me to be involved, and they told me what was going on. And we have an incredible uh, group of givers among us here. We have a benevolence fund, and you guys paid for that memorial service. I can't tell you the weight that lifted off that daughter's shoulders when I looked at her one afternoon during the week, and I said, she said, she was going, I don't know what I'm going to do. Can you imagine you lost your mom, and now you don't know how you're going to pay the mortuary? You don't know how you're going to pay for a service to try to honor your mother. You're dealing with all the fallout of the legal stuff you got to do and trying to organize a service and trying to deal with your grief. And you guys became the hands and feet of Jesus and you met the need. And I watched a weight go off of her shoulders. And she was like, blown away, like, you're going to what? Yeah, we're going to pay for the service. It's done. She was amazed. That's what James is talking about. We step into people's situations when they're in distress and we reach out. That's what Jesus did for so many people. Think about his healing ministry. Think about how many times he touched somebody in the worst situation. Lepers and people who were deaf and blind, outcasts of society, prostitutes who thought to themselves, can I even get close to him? Will he even allow me within a certain radius? And he said, oh, you come. You come and I'll, I'll touch your life. And he did it over and over and over again. And today, Jesus is hev- in heaven and we are his church. And the question we got to ask is, are we about his business or are we auditing the class? There it is. We know the word. We, in America, we get spoiled with a lot of good teaching and teachers. But the question James would say is, okay, now that you know it, What are you doing with it? God is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. Royal Family Kids Camp is a great example of this church reaching out. And when we do it, when we visit somebody in a hospital, when we provide food for someone who doesn't have anything, Jesus said, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Have you ever thought about it that way? Jesus said there's going to be a day when God separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep will be on the right, the goats on the left. And the difference between the two groups is going to be one simple thought. It's going to be about fruit. This group showed that they knew the king by their kingdom activity. And this group said they knew the king, many of them. Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And he says, I don't know you. So James says, look, this is what it's about. 
Write down Isaiah 1, 10 through 18 for your notes. I'm not going to read it now, but it's about Israel going through all the religious motions, but not doing what God said. And God said, look, I'm tired of that stuff. Your hands are covered with blood. I want you to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says God. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. And the final application is to keep oneself unstained by the world. I don't have to tell you how messed up and polluted this world is. And James says if you're... If you've had a true encounter with the living God, the tongue will be bridled, the heart will be doing, and the life will be unpolluted. Three applications, very simple. Think about the church today. Think about how many people are walking into the world week after week after leaving Christian churches on a Sunday and go right into mega-pollution. And to keep oneself unstained from the junk that is out there is a challenge, amen? It challenges us to the core. But is it your intention when you walk out of here to say, gonna bridle it, gonna be about kingdom business, and I don't wanna be polluted with that stuff. I'm gonna make up my mind not to be defiled, says Daniel in Daniel 1.8, to, to eat of the king's delicacies. Look, I don't wanna be defiled by that junk. There's too many people swimming in that nasty stuff. I don't want it. And some of you have been there. And you know what it's like. And James is saying, look, this is the test. This is what the mirror says. Paul puts it this way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I deliver my body to be burned, I become a martyr but don't have love, it profits me nothing. Look, everything I've said to you is not about a works-based righteousness. It's about everything that flows from a love relationship with your Father. Amen? Evangelism, goodness to other people, a tongue bridled, helping people in distress, keeping oneself unpolluted by the world, and there could be many more added to that are all the result of knowing our God and saying his love and his goodness is better than life. That old stuff, those broken cisterns, they mean nothing. How many of you over your time have tried to go back to the world as a Christian? How's it taste? Not so good. Oh, there's pleasure in that world for a few moments, but that's about all. But if you want to be blessed, says James, here's the formula. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Well, the mirror of God's word. Every week I study it, it, ma it makes me look at some deep stuff, man. The word is deep, isn't it? But it's good. It's taken me to some deeper places. I, I couldn't have imagined what God has done. And each time he takes us deeper, He's showing us what it means to be blessed. Father, we are so grateful for the power of your word. Lord, I want to come on behalf of all 
saints here and just say, Lord, thank you for forgiveness in Jesus. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of my blunders, I couldn't stand here, Lord. I couldn't look in that mirror. But thank you that when I look in that mirror, I see something else happening. I'm being changed from one degree of glory to another. And I'm so grateful that you're doing the work. And really, I think one of the main things here, we've talked about doing, but it's also about yielding. It's about being and yielding. And I pray that each of us could yield more this week. Lord, we could, we could think about simply James' three-point sermon and say, okay, this week, Lord, would you tame my tongue? Lord, would you move my feet to someone in distress? Lord, would you help me to keep myself unpolluted, unstained by this world? And I'm going to ask you if you'd keep your head and heart bowed. If you've not met Jesus as your Savior, maybe you've been trying to do good works in your own power, and you've been frustrated. Maybe you thought you were okay with God, but you're not born again to a living hope. Maybe you knew about the cross and the resurrection, but you haven't trusted the one who died on that cross and rose from the dead. Keep your head and heart bowed, and if you want to open your heart to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now, today, I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand, and I'm going to pray for you. Everybody's got their eyes closed, and everybody's focusing on the Lord, so don't worry about who's going to see you, but would you lift up your hand right now? Let me pray for you if you want to trust Christ for the first time. If there's anybody here, raise it up right now, and let me pray for you. God bless you. Anybody else? You want to meet the living God today? God bless you. Father, for those who have extended out their hand and those who maybe couldn't get their hand up, but this is what they want, help them right now to open their hearts. Something like this. Would you pray it with me? Lord Jesus, come into my life. I thank you that you died on that cross for my sin. Pray it if it's you. I thank you that you rose from the dead. And I place my trust in you as my Lord and my Savior. I turn from my sin, and I turn to you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for being so gracious. I trust you, and I want to follow you. Lord, for those who may be rededicating and for the sweet body of Christ, the saints here today, bless them, refresh them, encourage them. Thank you for those who are doing this stuff already. Thank you for the change that we've seen in our own lives. We celebrate that. We thank you that you're doing a work. And he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.